Uh, Thank you, Rick. Hello again. Let me encourage you to keep that uh, passage open in your Bible or uh, on your device or however you like to look at it. We're going to be speaking about it for the next 25 minutes or so now. Uh, We're continuing this morning uh, through this section of the book of Luke that we're looking at at here at Trinity for uh, term one. And over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, this section of the book of Luke has all been tied together by this idea that uh, Jesus, the king, uh, he, he was on earth 2,000 years ago, but he believed and we believe uh, that he's going to return to earth again one day. And we've been talking about uh, what his return might look like, why we should be longing for him to come back soon. Uh, today, though, Jesus tells this little story, this parable. Uh, he tells the story, verse 9, to people who are very confident of their own righteousness. And then the parable is about two people who are looking for righteousness, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what we're going to see is that this story, it's all about this key question. When the king returns, Jesus is going to return one day, when the king returns, who will be righteous before him? Who will win the king's favour? How can we be righteous in his sight? The idea of trying to find righteousness, I don't particularly think it's something we strongly connect with very much in 21st century Australia. The word righteous, it's not even a word we really use these days, really, is it? And maybe in church, of course, but uh, we might sometimes use it a bit more broadly, but um, generally in a negative way, we might say something like, oh, that person is so self-righteous uh, because they think that they're better than everyone else. And you might say the idea of righteousness then is not very relevant in 21st century Australia. Uh, it's a bit of an old-fashioned concept, but actually... As I thought about it this week, I don't actually think that's very true at all. You see, the word righteousness might be a bit old-fashioned in terms of a word, but what the word means, it's got to do with finding approval, being accepted. I don't know what you think, but I reckon the need to be accepted, to be approved of, just as relevant as it's ever been. Do you agree? Think of a couple of examples uh, It's almost that time of year when uni starts up again. I know it's been such a short summer break. Three and a half months go by so quickly for our uni students. Really rough. Think of that feeling, though, when a year 12 applies for their uni course and then is accepted into the course that they applied for. That feeling, maybe when it's your daughter or your son who receives the uni offer. It's approval. It's acceptance. And quite rightly, there's a great godly sense of pride in an accomplishment like that well how many movies or novels or stories these days are about that desire to be accepted or celebrated the first uh, one that came to mind for me was uh frozen yep and i am a parent well actually i did see this before i was a parent but um keep that quiet uh the core of this story actually it's about uh, being accepted yes it's okay that you're a crazy ice queen with magical ice powers that's who you are You're loved, you're accepted. Great movie. I think these kind of ideas stir deep emotions within us. We want to be shown to be accepted. We want approval. And what could be more wonderful than being accepted, approved of, declared righteous by the God of the universe, the one who made us, the one who made everything. Of course, for most 21st century Australians, being righteous and approved of before God isn't necessarily what's on the agenda. It might be Uh, that someone doesn't believe there is a God and so it's more important to find approval in the eyes of others. Maybe it's parents or a spouse or an online community or uh, maybe some want to become public figures and find approval in the eyes of the general public. 
uh, plenty of others are open to the idea of God, but actually often I think the attitude is, well, if there was a God, I'm sure he would find me righteous. After all, I'm a good person. I follow the rules. I'm kind to others. I give to charity. I watch my carbon footprint. I do all the right things. I believe the right things. I support good causes on social media. Of, of course God would approve of me. I mean, at least on a relative scale, I, I'm much better than lots of other people. Well, Jesus told this parable to people who were, what did verse 9 say, confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. The story that Jesus told was actually designed to shock the people he told it to. Understood correctly, it might shock most 21st century Australians too. And the shock value in the story uh, really comes from the story's characters, particularly the way the characters meet unexpected fates. So we're going to have a closer look at the parable and let's approach the story actually by looking at the different characters that we've seen and heard about in the story. We're going to look first at the Pharisee, then the tax collector, and we will spend the majority of the time on those first two. And then we will uh, touch number three on those uh, couple of verses at the end about the little children coming to Jesus. Those verses are not part of the parable, it's a different section, but I do think there's a reason that Luke puts that little story right after our parable and there is a close connection between the two. It also connects to what we'll be looking at next week as well, so I expect Cameron, who's preaching next week, will uh, come back to those verses again. And point four, we'll bring it together uh, and ask, what does this say about us and our standing, our righteousness before the King? Make sense? So firstly, then, the Pharisee. Often, uh, as we come across Pharisees in the Bible, we have to start by saying something like this. We, we know when it comes to Pharisees that often Jesus critiqued the Pharisees. Often Jesus pointed out the flaws and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We know that the Pharisees were ultimately involved in killing Jesus. Uh, so we immediately think of the Pharisees as bad guys. But uh, those who heard Jesus' story, and uh, they didn't think that at, all, that at all. They thought the Pharisee was the good guy. They thought Pharisee, they thought good guy. And if we were living in the time of the Bible, we would have uh, thought the same thing too. And we need to actually understand this because otherwise we will miss a lot of the shock value uh, in the story that we're looking at. And now you might be thinking, okay, I know what you're going to say next, Matt. Yes, on the surface, the Pharisee seemed like a good guy, but underneath he was, uh, we're going to see that he was a hypocrite. But even that actually, yes, there are times when Jesus encounters particular Pharisees and he kind of points out that they're hypocritical, but actually there's no indication at all in the story today, that this Pharisee was a hypocrite in any way. From what we can tell, this is actually genuinely a good guy, an upstanding member of the community. He was a good citizen. He didn't steal. He was a good husband. He didn't commit adultery. He was generous, gave away 10% of everything he got. Do you know, by the way, how much the average Australian gives to charity? Only 1%, only 1%. So this is a generous guy. In fact, to be completely frank... If this guy was to come to Trinity Church Brighton, well, he would fit in really well and be a much-loved member of our community. We'd probably get him up on stage and interview, about, in, interview him about his prayer and Bible reading habits as we've uh, been doing interviews the last few weeks. And that's, none of that's to say, you know, look to your left, look to your right. You know, someone could be hiding a dirty little secret that they're secretly a Pharisee. Uh, no, this, this, this person doesn't have any dirty secrets. His closets are clean. There's no skeletons. And yet... The story shocks us because when he comes to the temple to pray, he did not go home justified. He did not go home righteous or accepted by God. 
you feel the shock value of this genuinely good person. So if the Pharisee is not a hypocrite and he's no, not a bad guy, well then why, why does he not go home righteous before God? Well, to work that out, we have to look at the way in which he prays. We have to look at his prayer. So let me, let me put his prayer on the screen. I'm going to read it for us, and I want you to pay attention, listen carefully, and I want you to ask the question, what's wrong with the prayer? What's wrong with the prayer? Ask that question in your minds as we read. Let, let me read verse 11. What's wrong with the prayer? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. What do you think's wrong with the prayer? The first thing I notice is that he does come, uh, come across as a bit up himself. I mean, especially the sort of, you know, the thanks that I'm not like this tax collector kind of line. Well, actually, it doesn't read to me like he said that line, you know, out loud for the tax collector to hear. Like, oh yeah, thanks that I'm not like that tax collector. And actually, even when you think about it, some of that sort of stuff isn't that bad, is it? I mean, I'm sure when I pray sometimes, especially after I've maybe spent some time with someone who's going through a harder patch, I might pray something like, God, I thank you that I'm not like that person, as in I'm not in that situation. I'm, I'm thankful that things are going much better for me. It's not quite so wrong, is it? I, I was also looking at this this week. I, I'm undecided about this, so I'd love to know what you think. There's even a little bit of a chance that the Pharisee's prayer was somewhat biblical. Let me just flick back in our Bibles a little bit. I'll, I'll do it on the screen. No need to do it in your actual Bible. This is um, a little section from Psalm 26. This is what Psalm 26 says. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of the evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I'm not like the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers. Not quite so different, is it? I, I, wonder, I wonder if there's even a chance that the Pharisee had read the psalm uh, that morning in his quiet time and later on turned it into prayer. Surely you can't go wrong if you do something like that, can you? Well, I'm laboring the point a bit here, and maybe I am defending the Pharisee a little bit too much, but sometimes you do hear of people describing this Pharisee as some sort of crazy, over-the-top, arrogant sort of person, and I just don't think that's quite the reality. If we do go back to his prayer, though, I do think there is a major problem here. I do think there's a major problem with his prayer. Yes, he's a little bit of a jerk in what he says about the tax collector, but actually I think the major problem is actually more around what he doesn't say rather than what he does. You see, when a Jew would go to the temple to pray, you're going to be going to offer sacrifices, ask for God's forgiveness, that sort of thing. Uh, notice what's missing from the Pharisee's prayer. He does mention God right at the start, but after that it's I, 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 I. Actually, I think it's only four eyes. I'm not like this, I'm like this, I do this, I do that. I mean, in some ways it's not even a prayer, is it? It's, it's dear God, I'm fantastic. You're welcome. What's missing? What's missing is asking for something. Specifically, he doesn't ask for God's help. He doesn't ask for anything at all. You're going to the temple. You're meant to be going to ask for forgiveness and ask for God to declare you righteous. But the Pharisee, the, for the Pharisee, the prayer is basically, God, lucky I'm awesome, so I don't need your help. You get the sense that he doesn't think he needs God at all. Or when we come to our second character, the tax collector, we're now looking at someone who's almost the complete opposite of the Pharisee, aren't we? Look at what the tax collector does in verse 
13. For the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We've spoken about how Pharisees would have been seen in the first century Jewish world. You might know that tax collectors would have basically been seen as the opposite. They were working with the occupying Roman government. I mean, imagine if we got invaded here in Australia by, I don't know, New Zealand, and how would we feel about the Aussie, Aussie who started working to help the Kiwi army? Not going to be particularly popular. And the reputation of the tax collectors as well was that, well, the Roman government, really, they wanted to get their taxes, they wanted to get what they owed, but their attitude was that if the tax collectors wanted to be corrupt and extort extra money on top of what people actually owed, the Romans were happy to look the other way as long as they get their share. So the tax collector would in all likelihood have been corrupt, taking money that he didn't need to take. In a couple of weeks, we're going to meet a tax collector who has been doing just that. And again, just to be clear, like the Pharisee was a good guy. This isn't like a situation where the the tax collector, you know, it's not like he seems like a bad guy on the surface, but actually underneath he's got a heart of gold. Um, He's actually a good guy when we look more carefully. No, he's legitimately actually properly a bad guy, like just straight up bad dude. I mean, to be fair, we don't know the specifics of what had gone on in this particular tax collector's life. The important thing actually is that he knows He knows that he needs God's help. He comes before God, he prays, and he asks for God's help. He asks for God's mercy. Interestingly, what the tax collector literally says here is, uh, it's not have mercy on me, a sinner. It's actually literally have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy on me, the sinner. You get the sense that whereas the Pharisee was always maybe looking sideways and doing that typical 21st century Australian thing, you know, well, I'm better than that guy and relatively speaking, I'm better than most people, so surely that makes me a good person. Surely that makes me righteous. The tax collector, well, it doesn't seem to matter how good he is, uh, how good everyone else is. It's not relative. Maybe he is better than most tax collectors. Maybe he's worse. The point to him, though, is that he is the sinner. All he knows is that however good or bad everyone else is, he needs God. He's failed to live God's way. He throws himself upon the mercy of the king. And God hears him, and God forgives him, and God justifies him, declares him righteous. God accepts him. It's a story that's meant to stir us up a bit, meant to shock us. The good guy who does all the right things and the person that the story, that society looks down on, and yet it's the outcast who goes home right with God. It's a story... That might make you actually think of a number of other stories that Jesus tells. There's a number of this theme. There's a good guy, a bad guy. The unexpected one is the one who God accepts. Remember last year we looked at the story of the prodigal son a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Luke. The older son who ends up sulking and left out of the party. It reminds me when, reminds us that when Jesus returns and that uh, division happens, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, remember two grinding grain One was taken, one was left. Two in bed together, one was taken, one was left. When that division happens, it may not be the ones that society expects that Jesus will accept and welcome into his kingdom. And who will be the ones that are declared righteous, accepted by the king? Well, it will be the ones who know they need God. It'll be the ones who know 
they need Jesus. We see this as well in the little story with the little children straight after the parable, verses 15 to 17. It's just a simple little story. Children and babies are coming to Jesus. The disciples try and stop it. They must think Jesus has uh, too much to do already. But Jesus says, no, let the children come because the kingdom belongs to such as these. A little story, but very profound. There's lots we could say about the story of the little children, actually. As, as I said earlier, I think it's a bit of a bridge between the parable we're looking at this morning and what we're going to look at next week. Also, be an interesting discussion to talk about what this uh, little story about the little children says about the place of children within the community of God. We could talk about, given all of this section is kind of to do with Jesus' return, just the joy that a child has when they haven't seen their parents for a long time and then they finally see their mother or father again. How special will it be when we finally see Jesus when he returns to earth again, just to see him again and be with him? But given that Luke puts the story right after the parable that we've been looking at, the Pharisee and the tax collector, I think probably the big point we're meant to take away is to look at the example that children are of trust and dependence. Think about the example children are of trust and dependence and faith. In the parable, what ended up being the difference between the two characters in terms of their righteousness, the tax collector knew he needed God, while the Pharisee thought he could be righteous on his own. Little children certainly aren't going to make the Pharisees' mistake, are they? They know perfectly well that they rely on someone else normally their parents, for everything. They rely on someone else for everything. They need their parents. They trust their parents. There is no pride in being a little child. They humbly rely on their parents for everything. And they go to them. Most of you will know we have a little daughter, Lucy. If you spend a day with Lucy, uh, she will ask for your help uh, probably 45 times. I need food. I need my water bottle. I need you to read this book. I need you to fix the book because I've just torn a page out and there's this total trust that whatever happens her parents can fix every problem. The other day Lucy asked me to fix her toast because she had ripped it apart and eaten half of it. (laughs) Like the tax collector who knew he could offer nothing to God and relied uh, relied wholly in God's mercy, trusting in God's mercy. Children are utterly reliant, aren't they? They're totally dependent on their parents. They trust their parents to look after them, whatever happens. There's no danger of a little child going to their mum and dad and saying, I don't need you. The mistake of the Pharisee was believing that he could be righteous on his own just because he maybe could look around and think that he lived a little bit better life than those around him. To be righteous before God requires something very different to that. It requires total trust in the righteousness of Jesus. We've heard about the Pharisee, we've heard about the tax collector, the little children. Lastly, uh, let's bring this home for the last few minutes and think about ourselves. I think often when we read parables in the Bible, they cause us to kind of hold up a mirror and ask, who am I in the story? Am Am I there? Am I that one? Am I the one who goes home in good standing before the king? Well, for our last point, as we think about ourselves, let me give us four questions that I think will help us to figure out who we are in the parable, where we are in the parable, what the parable means for us. So four quick questions to ask of ourselves. 
Number one, are you confident in your own righteousness? Remember the start of the parable, who Jesus told the parable to? People who were confident of their own righteousness, like the Pharisee. Thank you, God, that I'm a great person. The modern version of that Pharisee, by the way, it could be, it could be people in the church, of course. Plenty of Christians do trust in their, in their morals or their position or their achievements for their standing before God. But actually, I do want to say that this passage, it's not just for those in the church either. Pharisees were very much part of the leadership of Jewish society. Uh, they were public figures and they were kind of out there in the secular world as well, if that makes sense. Of course, the Jewish religious and secular worlds were all tied together. Like I said at the start, I think there are plenty of people in our society today that are confident that they are righteous in who they are. So if you think of a modern version of the Pharisee, perhaps one type of person we could think of is maybe the celebrity that supports all the right causes, retweets all the right tweets, is compassionate to everyone. Surely God would approve of someone like that. Surely they are righteous. It could just be that lovely woman in your office. She's kind to everyone. She's generous with her time. She gives to the office charity appeal. She takes people out for lunch. A genuinely good person. Surely God would accept her as she is. Of course, the modern version of the Pharisee could be one of us too. too. Deep down, do I actually think that I am a pretty good person? Yeah, I've, I've had a little bit of bad stuff in my past, but actually... I've grown a lot. I'm a lot more like Jesus than what I used to be. Maybe I can stand before God based on my performance. Are you confident of your own righteousness? Or do you know that you're a sinner and you need God? Do you know your sin? I want to say for some of us in the room, we're probably actually more like the tax collector in the story. There just is no doubt. I need God. I'm a bad guy or girl. I'm the sinner. I need Jesus. Uh, no doubt whatsoever, not, not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, but actually looking around the room, most of us are, I think most of us actually are pretty nice people. We're a pretty nice bunch at Trinity Church Brighton. And I do want to say this very clearly, and I want you to uh, just listen carefully to this because this is important. I don't want anyone to go away with the wrong idea. You could read this story and think about this story and think, just because I'm a nice person, that makes me more likely to be the Pharisee. Just because you're a nice person. Uh, Just because I'm a nice person, it makes me more likely to be the Pharisee. I want to say, just because you're a nice person does not make you the Pharisee in the story. I say that very clearly. Just because you're a nice person does not make you the Pharisee in the story. It's not what the the parable is getting at. It's not not about nice people and not so nice people. The question that this story has asked us is, do you know your sin? Do you know that you need Jesus? Uh, Whether you're a nice person or a not so nice person, if you say yes to that, yes, I know my sin, I know I need Jesus, then praise God. Praise God. This passage should be a warning for those of us who go around thinking that they don't need God. It should be a warning for those of us who maybe have just started rating ourselves a little bit too highly. But if, actually, if you remember right back to the start of the book of Luke, the way the book begins, the whole book is actually written with the expressed purpose of giving us confidence in our faith. So what's important here is Actually, not whether you're a nice person or not. It's whether you know your sin and trust Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, you're not meant to go away from this parable worried that you're in the opposite camp to what you thought you were. You're meant to go away confident. If you trust in Jesus, you are accepted. You are approved of. You are righteous in his sight. 
When the king returns, you will find favor in his eyes. Do you know your sin? Do you know your need for God? Third question, do you look down at others? Uh, Jesus told this parable to those who are confident of their own righteousness and who look down on everyone else. I wonder if you look down on others, or, or to put it another way, are you obsessed with those horizontal sort of comparisons? Can I say, I think this is a particularly, uh, particularly a danger if you're successful. There's the Pharisee in the story, he, he was successful, wasn't he? He was a highly respected member of society, he was moral, he was a good guy, he was well-liked. I think the Pharisee's big problem was when he went to pray to the temple, he looked sideways, and he was better than the others. That's, that's true, isn't it? He was better. I thank God that I'm not like the adulterer or the thief or the tax collector. The problem with looking horizontally is that if you are successful or you're just a relatively decent person, you can start to judge yourself in comparison to others and then subconsciously you can think that maybe God judges me the same way too. Surely God would accept me. I'm much better than him or her or those types of people. Surely I could be righteous on my own. So are you confident of your own righteousness? Do you know your sin? Do you look down on others? Very finally, will you be vulnerable before the Father? Last thing to say, I think mixed up in this parable is a really nice truth about the character of God. We talked at the start about that desire for righteousness, that desire to be accepted, affirmed, approved of. Often in the world today, we try and find that approval by looking to the approval of others of friends, of loved ones, of colleagues, of workplaces, of general society. We look a certain way to fit in, we act a certain way, we are very careful to say the right things, to support the right causes. It can be very easy to end up with this whole facade where you carefully control how people see you, all stemming from that desire to be accepted. Well, in a parable today, the tax collector, the lowest of the low, the bottom of society, the outcast who no doubt done all sorts of terrible things the tax collector comes before God and there's no facade he beats his breast and says God I'm a sinner I know how it is God accepts him God gives him the righteousness of Jesus isn't that a wonderful thing what does that say about God I think it says that our God is the God we don't need to put on an act for our God is the God we don't need to put on an act for. All our God wants is us. He wants us to come to him as we are, like that little child comes running to his or her parents. No hiding, no pretending. He just wants us to come to him and ask for his help. Isn't that such a better way than being obsessed with others approving you? Isn't that so freeing? A good person can come to God and be honest about their flaws and failings. All that pressure of keeping on going at the top of your game, there's There's no pressure. God accepts you as you are by his grace. And the person who might worry that God isn't going to accept them because they're just not good enough, well, in God's eyes, that's ridiculous. He loves you. All he wants is for you to come to him. He'd love to give you the righteousness of Jesus and welcome you into his family, his kingdom. Our God accepts everyone, everyone who comes to him. There is no need to put in an act. There's just a need to come to him and ask for his help. Are you confident of your own righteousness? Do you know your sin? 
Do you look down at others? Will you be vulnerable before the Father? Let's come to him now in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father God, we come to you now and we acknowledge our sin. Most of us in the room, I'm sure, are good people in lots of ways. Uh, Maybe some, until today, thought that was enough. Father, we know that our idea of being righteous based on living slightly better lives than those around us will not bring us righteousness in your sight. Father, have mercy on us. Help us to know our sin. Help us to be vulnerable before you. Help us to avoid the trap of comparing ourselves against others. Help us to see the truth that on our own we have no righteousness before you. Help us to come to you, to trust you. Help us to know that when we do come to you, whoever we are or whatever we've done, we are accepted. We are loved. And we know that that's in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.